Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Saif Savage, the co-director of the UNAM Civic Innovation Lab, one of the 35 innovators under 35 named by the MIT Technology Review, a Google Anita Borg scholarship recipient, and a fellow at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Her work has been covered in the BBC, Deutsche Welle, and the New York Times, as well as published in top academic venues, where she has also won honorable mention awards. Dr. Savage has been awarded grants from the National Science Foundation, Industry, the United Nations, and has also created collaborations with both federal and local governments where she has driven them to adopt human-centered design and AI to deliver better experiences and government services to citizens. Dr. Savage has opened the research area of human-computer interaction at West Virginia University and holds a bachelor's degree in computing engineering from the National Autonomous University of Mexico and a master's and PhD in computer science from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Savage has also worked at the University of Washington, Carnegie Mellon University, and Intel Labs. I welcome Saif Savage to Savage Minds. I've been following your work. I've been following a lot of work on the subject of bots and democracy, because as you are quite aware, they have an impact on our society, on political discourse, on media, major media especially. And I read your paper, Botivist, Calling Volunteers to Action Using Online Bots. Oh, thank you. Where you designed and conducted experiments on Twitter through Botivist, stating that you, quote, chose this focus because activist groups usually need volunteers to work together towards a common goal. Thus, Botivist tweets were structured to create collaboration by mentioning three users and suggesting that they collaborate to fight a social problem. You also write, about the extensive literature and how media messages framing influences people's preferences for a product or how much they participate in an event. Now, I'm thinking about this project of yours in relationship to the work of media analysts from the 20th century, such as Marshall McLuhan, who speaks of this kind of social permeation of political messages into mass media of the mid to late 20th century. Can you explain how Botavist, in terms of how media functions today, say differently than television messages that McLuhan was studying, can you talk about the positive and negative results of your bot project and how this differs from the older ways of permitting messages into society? For instance, how do people interact with a bot in an online community? And are they even aware that they're interacting with a bot? So yeah, that's a really um, interesting question. I'll I'll start responding uh, parts of um, the, the question. So first, um, let's talk a little bit about do people even know many times if they are interacting with a bot? Um, when we were designing Botavist, part of what we argued in the design was that it was important for the bot to be transparent that it was a bot. And so Botavist um, upfront in its bio stated, I'm a bot. Um, it also had a, a photograph in, in its profile picture of a bot. Um, it also had a name uh, of a bot in its uh, profile. Um, why did we choose to have transparency? We were asking people to volunteer their time, for instance, to start to think about ways in which they could uh, solve problems uh, in their city. 
And so when you're thinking about asking people to volunteer their time, if you were if we were lying to people uh, by having automation and not telling them that there was automation, people can get upset. And so that was why we chose to be transparent about it. Um, I think that many times it can be difficult for individuals to know if they are communicating with a bot or not, um, especially also because you have to consider that many times people have different types of digital skills. And so um, you could be, for instance, talking with somebody who has a very strange, what you would consider strange way of expressing themselves online, but it could be, for instance, that they're um, maybe rural from rural communities and they just haven't been that much on social media. And so they're using social media differently than uh, what you would normally expect, or they might be also older. Um, and so I think that it's it can be sometimes problematic to start to label people as bots because it could just be that they are um, that they have they're not as tech savvy as you would expect. I think that as bot designers, we do have to be transparent in 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 whether in in presenting whether or not our our technology uh, is our does have automation or not. Um, and I think that is crucial for engaging people with, with the technology. Um, now, I think that there are benefits in terms of using bots. Uh, some of the benefits are, for instance, as, as you were discussing actually fr from the paper, well, bots can, can take on a lot of the really hard work that uh, NGOs have to do, such as recruiting people for their, for their causes. Um, right now, if, if you don't have automated methods, the NGOs have to go out and manually start to learn which type of messages might work, which type of people might engage with them. And so with the bots, what we were doing was we're saying, okay, you know what? That's a very tedious, recruitment can be a very tedious, difficult tasks. Let's give it to the bots so that they can take on those um, tedious roles that uh, these NGOs are doing. And once the, the bot has engaged those individuals, then you could think about the NGO coming in and focusing on more creative tasks with people. And this is also something that we have currently started um, studying and working on with now with Mexico's federal government, where we're designing bots to help uh, government workers be able to delegate part of their work. And so what does this look like? Uh, many times, for instance, government workers might have the same uh, questions being asked to them. For instance, hey, when does this uh, government office open up so that I can come pick up my paperwork? That's a questions that are can be tedious for a human to constantly be responding. And so right now what we're doing is that we're delegating that work into bots who, who respond those questions. And then we have human agents who step into the conversation when the conversation gets more um, more, more complex and, and, and when you need human intelligence. And are there dangers on the horizon, aside from your research, which was very focused within, it was in, within Latin America as well. Uh, some of your research, I noticed you did a study also in Venezuela as to the use of political bots there. We know that bots can be used both for more positive messages, such as that which you just described, and more negative nefarious purposes that we have seen in recent history. I'm thinking to I don't know if you read the piece in the Atlantic last January, Bots Are Destroying Political Discourse As We Know It by Bruce Schneier. And he wrote about the way that bots threatened even the then presidential political campaign season. How are bots 
not just social media chat box, which we might use to say, I didn't get a copy of my last electric bill. Can you send that to me or whatnot? How are bots used to not only do good, such as the recruitment for NGOs, but how might these also be turned negatively towards framing and manipulating public discourse? Yeah, so um, I would say th there are different types of uh, political bots that exist. So one type of political bots are bots that focus on uh, generating positive messages about, for instance, a political candidate. And so um, these bots aim to change public opinion because they want to pretend that, oh, everybody is supporting this person. And many times, um, and so the, the bots might go out on social media and start generating a bunch of positive messages about a political candidate that um, that, that wants to be promoted. Uh, for instance, uh, maybe you have um, bots that are going out and saying, oh, uh, we love uh, President Trump. He's the best uh, president in the world. And so this can get bystanders to start to see the messages and start to think like, oh, yeah, maybe th this is a this is a good candidate. You know, he has a lot of support. Um, but it, this is more to promote uh, it's it's political propaganda to promote a particular message. Other type of political bots that can exist um, involve, uh, for instance, now attacking certain political candidates. Uh, for instance, maybe you have bots that are going out and attacking, for instance, Trump and saying like, oh, um, he's broke, he's he he made America um, worse, um, etc. And these bots are, again, it's another type of political propaganda that are focused on attacking a candidate. Other type of political bots that exist involve diverting attention. So for instance, many times you can have uh, hashtags, uh, trending hashtags about a certain political issue. Sometimes what bots do is that they focus on creating other types of hashtags uh, that also become trending topics so that they can divert the attention. So let's say, for instance, that you have a hashtag about um, let's say, um, oh, uh, the, the election was stolen. Um, and let's say that, that that's a hashtag um, election steal. And um, what the bots might do is that they might go out on social media and create a a hashtag in parallel so that about maybe candies, let's say, oh, chocolate is delicious. And so this way people, um, this way they can help to remove the trending topic of election steal and just have people now focused on chocolate. Um, and so that's another way in which uh, these political bots can divert attention. Um, or they can also, uh, for, for instance, um, many times spam a, a trending topic uh, with, uh, let's say, content that has nothing to do with that hashtag, again, to also divert attention. So let's say that you have that hashtag about the election steal. They might suddenly create content that has nothing to do with the election steal so that when people start to look at that hashtag, they're not going to be able to find relevant content about the political discussion that is taking place. Um, now, other types of uh, bot attacks that I have seen recently, and I think that these are significant, uh, they can be significantly dangerous, especially for journalists, is uh, bots coordinating attacks to get 
journalist banned. Um, so for instance, um, recently there was uh, different YouTubers that were going out and allegedly reporting about uh, China's, uh, the, about how the, the government of China was allegedly um, creating disinformation and propaganda campaigns. What started to happen to these YouTubers was that they found that a number of what appeared to be bot accounts started flagging their content as uh, being spam, as being controversial. And YouTube, because it has um, algorithms that many times it, it doesn't have human cur curators who are going through the content, but rather they just say like, oh, you know what? This content is receiving a lot of um, downvotes. Let's just remove it. Let's just ban it. And so a number of YouTubers, um, and this was also a similar dynamic was also happening on Facebook with the journalists. They would uh, suddenly get a lot of their content would be flagged as spam, as being controversial, as being extremely violent, etc. And so YouTube, Facebook, etc. would decide to just ban their content. Um, and this can be dangerous for the journalists because on one hand that is affecting their livelihood um, and that is also a way in which bots are effectively censoring uh, the, their opposition. Now we have to remember though that bots are not these creatures that have been created out of nothing. They are politically motivated structures. How can we tell the difference between authentic speech and non-authentic speech, and how does the media cover that? Like, I'm a journalist. I put up a piece last year about racism, and Facebook flagged it. And I got a slap on my hand saying, this goes against our standards. It was a piece criticizing racism. So sometimes their bots that flag up things get it wrong, but then my article doesn't get disseminated, as it, yeah. I think, rightly should be. And on yes. the other hand, you have what happened just recently over the past week where Twitter blocks posts in India critical of Modi's COVID-19 response. Yep. Not only Twitter uh, blocking Modi, but we know from last fall with the news of Biden's son being employed by, heavily employed by a gas company in Russia, that not only got flagged by Twitter and Facebook, the news stories out of the New York Post, but they even blocked the New York Post account at one point for 24 hours. So wow. one could say that, you know, it's not just bots, but there's a collusion with the big tech companies to ensure certain political messages. If Twitter and Facebook or Instagram are not flagging what are tendentious political reports, what some like Trump might call fake news or what yeah. others just call badly researched blog posts, how can the user or any of us who'd like to read across the political spectrum have access to that information when we have bots pushing certain narratives? We recognize that bots putting out fake news are not good, but who's disseminating the truth of what's fake or not fake? Yeah, I, I think that that's a really great point. Um, on, on one hand, you're discussing about how um, these big tech companies have a lot of power in deciding um, what gets, for instance, disseminated, what what is going to get more visibility uh, based on their um, algorithms. Um, and so right now, a really good strategy that these bots have is deciding to flag certain content. And um, because these large tech companies, 
they 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 usually have um, a lot of their uh, moderation is uh, through automation. So they don't have necessarily human curators who are behind the scenes looking at what's going to get viral, what's not going to get viral. Um, they depend a lot on okay, did this post receive a lot of, um, what was it flagged by a significant number of people as being, um, for instance, controversial? Yeah, we're not going to um, help this post get distributed. And that, that's probably what happened to your post where um, maybe bots, for instance, or even political trolls as well, organized to flag your post as being controversial, being violent, et cetera. And Facebook uh, really didn't even take the time to analyze whether or not this was accurate, but rather just put into place uh, their automated algorithms to start to ban your content. I think that here it's important for us to realize the type of power that these large tech co corporations have, and on one hand, be able to even be able to audit um, how they're operating, um, and being also able to have more stakeholders involved in what gets flagged, what doesn't get flagged. Uh, because right now you have a lot of uh, centralization of power by uh, particular stakeholders, and that can hurt as well the, the discourse. Uh, um, and I think that it's worth it's worth considering other types of setups where it's not just big tech that is uh, deciding um, what type of political conversations we can have and which ones we can't have, um, but rather having a, a more stakeholders that that are involved in um, in in how these uh, processes are working. Um, for instance, on YouTube, there was uh, also um, a lot of uh, YouTubers that were. Get, getting together to ask Google to provide audits to them, um, provide more transparency about what content was getting banned, uh, what content also was getting demonetized. Um, and I think that asking for such type of transparency is also important uh, because, for instance, in your case, um, it wasn't at all clear about for you why your content was um, suddenly being banned from Facebook or, or, or being in a way censored from Facebook. I think that having ways in which we can audit what's happening behind the scenes on these platforms is important for accountability um, and also involving, I would say, uh, other actors. So, no, so now, not just having the, the centralization of power by, uh, by one company. Going back to the piece I referenced earlier by Schneier, he writes that about a fifth of all tweets about the 2016 presidential election were published by bots. And during that same year where there was the Brexit vote, about one third of all tweets were also created by bots. Then you have the 2019 Oxford Internet Institute report, which found evidence of bots being used to spread propaganda in 50 countries. So how is it that we can have a democracy when so many political messages are being established by bots, and then you have a lot of trolls. Now, getting to the trolls, it's an important aspect. And one of the subjects I spend quite a bit of time on, which is dealing with feminists' use of the internet. And there have been a lot of feminists kicked off of Twitter for quote unquote hate speech. It's not hate speech, but whatever. That's uh, currently under discussion right now in the UK with certain cases going on. But when you look at the fact that women are the part of the population that earns the less money, therefore has the less free time to go about internet actions. Men 
who are many of these trolls have more of the time to cyber stalk, troll women, these feminists I'm thinking of, they have the money to have the time to do this. Then you have this very dangerous cocktail where the internet seems to be reproducing the stage of, let's say, sex-based inequality all over because what are patently misogynist, I wrote a piece about this for the Huffington Post years ago, the rape them and tape them Facebook posts that Zuckerberg left up for months, years even, that was allowed to persist, including unfortunate child pornography images. And yet women are being kicked off of Twitter for saying sex is real. And so I'm wondering why this has not been taken into account, not just by tech giants, but by individual think tanks, uh, investigators such as yourself as well, who know the power of human and bot interaction because trolls can interact to push a certain message forward that a bot is also perpetuating such that we see a rinse and repeat of misogyny online. There's quite a bit of anti-woman discourse out there. And it's not the men getting kicked off. It tends to be the women. So how can a platform like Twitter say, okay, this has been flagged by these users and they're male and the messages that they're disagreeing with are coming from females. How can this not be assessed in a way to recognize a certain kind of cyber structural misogyny? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, and I think that maybe part of the problem is that you have many times engineers who are designing these systems who are not at all educated, uh, for instance, in gender studies. Um, and so they're not even thinking about these type of power dynamics. Um, I was working for a while in, um, in big tech um, and Microsoft in particular. And what I observed was that I think that part of the issue is that people are not, a lot of the engineers are just not educated um, and they have to meet their deadlines. They are pressured in terms of constantly having to deliver things on time, on time, on time. And they just can't take the time to, for instance, think about those power structures in their designs. Um, and I think that a way to fight that is maybe rethinking a lot about uh, the, 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 the social media platforms that we have, um, taking the time as well to even, I, I think that a, a solution is, is sometimes to use fiction. Um, so fiction sometimes can allow you to step outside of the world that we know, and it can create new types of, and allows us to start to consider new types of realities. Um, and so I think that it, there, it would be worth to even reconsider about what would a feminist um, social media platform look like? What, what, what type of power dynamics is, exist? Because you're absolutely right that right now what is happening is that a lot of these um, social media platforms are promoting um, certain power structures. And I also really liked what you mentioned about the that many times, for instance, maybe you have males who are living in privilege and so they can take the time to stalk uh, women. Um, I, I think that that's a really good point um, also about how the, the, the social media platforms are as well uh, helping and promoting existing um, privileges that exist in the, in, in, in the real world. Um, and, and maybe part of it is um, thinking about how we can redesign these platforms. What would you say would be an 
a viable option for redesign when we see already that bots have such an influence. When I read that piece about the Brexit vote being influenced by one third bot input, that frightens me, both because I'm aware of how people get their media messages. We know that approximately 50% of the American public, for instance, get their news items to read now from social media. Many people like, I will go directly to Le Monde, uh, La Repubblica, uh, New York Times. But many people get their entirety of media information from what is shared on social media. So if a bot's power is to say, push a piece saying that Trump was the best president ever in U.S. history, and there, you have a significant bot farm putting out this information, that gets obviously magnified by the retweets and the trolls. How can we push back on this such that there is a genuine political response to genuinely distributed political messages? In a sense, bots are like a megaphone. And if you have the weight so much on one side of the political discourse, what are the hopes that genuine political content will even be seen? Yeah, I, I think that Part of it, maybe it's, um, I, I think that one thing that will happen is that as bots become more mainstream, people will likely be better at detecting when they're interacting with a bot and just start to ignore some of them. Um, and I say this especially because um, this was a little bit of what happened in Mexico. So in Mexico, um, from the the early 2010 um, in the 2012 election, we had a bunch of bots in the political ecosystem. And so bots became very mainstream um, in how we are interacting with them. Um, and so what, ha what has happened, for instance, in these latest elections is that people are not following bots. Uh, they're not really engaging with bots. Um, and so actually Oxford Internet Institute also did a study on that where they were seeing that, for instance, the, Me the Mexican public was pretty, had become pretty tech savvy in terms of um, ignoring uh, these types of bot accounts. Um, and so I, th I think that Part of the part of the solution might be that through time, on one hand, people will become more tech savvy to not necessarily fall for that type of political propaganda. I think that another thing that could be helpful is, I think part of the problem now is also polarization. Um, and so maybe it's uh, instead of thinking about, okay, uh, these bots are in the in our ecosystem, um, but rather thinking about, okay, how can we design more so that people are not as polarized and we can get um, the different um, the the, the pe people who are supporting different um, political actors to start to talk with each other uh, around conversations. Um, and I think that part of it is also helping people to realize that certain political actors benefit from them being polarized. Um, why? Because many times when people are polarized, they're going to be easier to mobilize for a political cause. Um, and so I think that part of it is education and educating people about political propaganda, how political disinformation works, um, some of the goals of political disinformation in motivating people. Um, and I think that it's 
helping people to develop uh, certain technical skills so that they can see through the propaganda. And I think there it's also important to educate about how foreign propaganda as well functions. Um, because for instance, many times uh, you can also um, have, uh, for instance, foreign actors who want to who, who take advantage of uh, polarization that exists within a country to promote a particular agenda. Um, so for instance, um, in, the, in 2014, um, there were evidence that um, Russian, R Russia had created political bots um, that were creating, um, th that were presenting themselves as black women. And they were starting to create um, content against white women. And th the purpose was more to create polarization between these two groups. Um, and so I think that it's helpful for the public to become aware about how also foreign actors benefit from polarization that can exist in, in their country and how they might be using that for certain political fights. Why is it that bots are not obliged by big tech to identify themselves as bots? Or is that impossible for big tech to police? Yeah, I think that, that that's, a, that's a, also a really good question. Um, I think that it's because uh, big tech benefits from the bots. So um, how do they benefit? There, there's a whole ecosystem um, and a whole economy ecosystem around bots. So you have, for instance, uh, companies that um, pay, uh, that, that, that get paid to create these bots. These bots are then bringing in traffic to these social media platforms. And then the social media platforms can say, hey, I have uh, 10,000 users on my platform, or 100,000 users on my platform, and they're generating um, this, this much content. What they're not telling you is that, oh, yeah, actually a great portion of um, the, the content that's on my site is um, for automated. Um, and so because it's such a huge um, ecosystem that's bringing them revenue, they're they they don't necessarily they they're they're not being they're not forcing these automated accounts to have to say that they are uh, bots um, because you're absolutely right um, it could it they they could create conditions where they say oh if you are a bot um, if you're creating bots on our platform you have to state that that this actor is a bot I think that they're not doing that dynamic more because of revenue. So a lot of what we see in terms of commercial bots intersects with political bots. Yeah, because um, I mean, what, what many times happens is that the you, you have, for instance, um, companies that will tell you, yeah, I can create a thousand bots for you. Um, and you, it's actually not not as expensive. Let's say uh, for ten dollars, I'll create uh, 500 bots for you. And so um, that ecosystem, and, and so you have an ecosystem of, on one hand, companies who are creating these accounts and the big tech companies benefit from these bots on their platforms because the big tech companies can then go, uh, for instance, to investors, to, to different actors and say, hey, we have this large amount of people um, of accounts on our on, on, on our platform. And so they get more investment. Um, they get it, it, it becomes a whole circle where multiple parties are, are being benefited. Um, but political actors many times go to these companies to purchase their bots.
That raises another question. Do bots have the capacity to acquire social relevance even when they have scripted responses or lack in-depth or any profile information? Yes. So I think that one of the things to consider is that the you can have bots that have a part automation, but then they can also have a human side. Um, and so these are hybrid accounts where, uh, for instance, on one hand, maybe you have some automation that is focused on retweeting content that mentions certain keywords. Um, and so accounts are just going to be focused on retweeting content that maybe mentions, let's say, Trump or Biden. And so they're just going to be retweeting content. But then you have um, many times you can have paid humans who are going to be going into the, these accounts and then generating, um, for instance, some replies or some content. And that's how they can be relevant. And so it could very well be that the automation, the the bot part that you have is, as, as you mentioned, um, kind of dumb. It's it's creating crafted um, repeti repetitive messages, but because they can also involve humans, they can become relevant. And, and that's when they can become also dangerous as well. Can you explain that danger that they might pose then if they become relevant? Yeah, I think that part of the danger can be that, um, for, for instance, on one hand, they could be, they, they have the power, for instance, to start to promote certain political agendas. Um, and for, as you saw as well, um, they could also silence other actors because uh, maybe they're flagging. So maybe let's say that you have accounts who are not as very sophisticated in their automation. They're maybe just retweeting content and maybe flagging certain content, et cetera. That can silence certain actors, as you saw with your own piece. And so that 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 act of um, maybe the bot is just focused on flagging certain content that can silence others. Um, it can cause, for instance, uh, let's say journalists. Um, many times they're effective at getting journalists to have their pages on Facebook taken down. That is costing people their um, their livelihood because may, many are dependent on their Facebook pages uh, to be selling um, and sharing their their, their news articles, um, and so that's affecting people's livelihoods. That that becomes dangerous. It, they can also help silence, as you saw with your articles, um, certain voices as well. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. In your paper, Political Bots and the Manipulation of Public Opinion of Venezuela, you and your cohorts examine how political bots have a role in Venezuelan political conversation, where bots have been used to retweet content from Venezuelan politicians, where you note that less than 10% of all retweets come from bot-related platforms, where you find that the most active bots are those used by Venezuela's radical opposition. So bots are pretending to be political leaders government agencies and political parties more than they are citizens. Bots are programming innocuous political events more than attacking opponents or spreading misinformation. In your paper's conclusion, you write that robotic lobbying tactics have been deployed in several countries, Russia, Mexico, China, Australia, the UK, the US, 
Azerbaijan, Iran, Bahrain, South Korea, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Morocco. And you write, indeed, experts estimate that bot traffic now makes up over 60% of all traffic online, up nearly 20% from just two years ago. Can you discuss how bots have been used in the years since you wrote this paper to influence public discourse? One of the th big things that I'm seeing right now about um, how bots are used is especially in terms of um, getting journalists banned, actually. Um, in, in Mexico, th this has been uh, one of the biggest trends that I'm seeing. Um, so uh, basically bot accounts organizing to flag certain content um, from journalists so that it doesn't get as much visibility as it would um, so that maybe the, it's the, the journalists can't monetize from their content. Um, for instance, what was happening also with the, with the YouTubers um, and also um, getting even uh, certain Facebook pages just banned and removed, um, as well as, uh, for instance, you, YouTube channels. Um, and so I think that the lately, some of the trends that I'm seeing more is the organization of bots, uh, not so much to now generate content, uh, maybe because they've seen that maybe people are seeing through uh, that the like th that th that their content is automated um, i'm seeing more bots especially organizing to silence certain voices by um sorry by uh flagging uh the, the content as uh, for instance problematic etc and big tech is just it, it doesn't have, uh, it, it's just not investing uh, enough human moderators to go through. It's just using many times automation. And so that content does get banned. Um, th that, that I would say is uh, one of the biggest trends that I'm seeing um, now. And I think also other types of trends involve um, these types of hybrid accounts where you have part out automation with part human. And um, that help that, that makes, uh, bots more difficult to, to detect as well. And also um, one other thing is uh, the emergence of more of these ecosystems of, um, of marketplaces of bots. Um, th I, I think that they're more commonplace now um, where um, in different countries, you now have bot developers uh, who are creating these bots for, for different purposes. You talk about journalists getting booted, and I've seen this with journalists. I've seen it with some very well-known journalists, as well as what I mentioned last fall with the 24-hour ban of the New York Post. But what about the messages that are getting out there? For instance, if you have a bot propagating information, true or false, let's just pretend it's even true there. How is this having a positive effect on democracy, even if the messages might be positive? I'll give you another example. You mentioned recruitment for NGOs. Okay, I've worked with NGOs. I've seen the good sides. I've seen the bad sides to them. And how can we have some kind of oversight into what are considered productive and progressive? I don't mean left progressive. I mean progressive in terms of a democratic voice together with people actively and consciously interacting with these messages over artificial messages. It seems that bots are tilting democracy in a very negative direction. 
So you you feel that they're tilting them towards a negative um, direction because uh, you have automation involved? Because the automation is often propagating messages that might have racist messages, that might have misogynist messages. And when those are in circulation enough, plus the fact that many social media users are men and they have free time to continue propagating the more negative messages, wouldn't this tilt democracy towards a more benign end in the sense of when we're seeing feminists being booted for saying sex is not fiction, sex is biological, and they're getting booted for saying this because they're being called, and this has happened, transphobic because they're saying sex is not gender, I am not a gender. This seems to me, especially given the plethora of these bootings over the past three years, that we're seeing a narrative that's being propounded that is even anti-science. So if you want to purport that biology is not real, that's fine on Twitter. If you purport that biology is real, you risk being booted. Yeah, I think that there, I, I feel that it's not necessarily the fault so much of technology, but rather these are, I think that part of the problem is that you have centralized power by these large technology companies. And um, I think that there it's really questioning why does one company get to decide who gets booted and who doesn't get booted? Um, for, for, and and, I, and I, I think that there it's really reconsidering um, that it, it would be, for instance, fairer to have this whole committee with, let's say, academics, NGOs, even governments, um, industry actors, who might be more involved in setting up uh, the rules of the discourse. The problem, I think, that it's 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 not so much of of bots, but rather I think that it's um, more a problem of the centralization of power. Um, and and I think that it's um, also as as I, as I mentioned before that. Many times, um, the large technology companies are maybe not even thinking about in, in detail about a lot of these uh, dynamics that can take place. So the fact that the internet has now internet traffic on social media has 60% bot traffic shouldn't be something that preoccupies us for the messages we're receiving? I, I think that it's it should be more um, I, I think that that can sometimes be like the scarecrow that we're that that we're looking at. I think that I would question more, okay, who has the power to decide, uh, for instance, what type of messages get banned, what type of messages don't get banned? Um, because for, for instance, let, let's say that we go after the bots. And uh, we're able to establish maybe certain rules about, well, bots can't be involved in conversations around um, politics, let's say. Great. There are still going to be uh, certain power dynamics that, that are, that are going to emerge um, from this. And so I would go instead after the problem of who has the, the power to, um, to, to decide 
who gets banned, who doesn't get banned on, on these platforms. Um, how, how transparent is that process? And, 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 and I think that that's, and I think that there is value in having, for instance, maybe even like national um, type of social media platforms where you have more actors who are involved in the decision-making and it's just not one large tech company who, ha who has all of the power centralized. Well, these are legal questions that have come up, such as the banning of Megan Murphy from Twitter, who publishes the Feminist Current in Canada. And she took Twitter to court. She lost the case, but the case was based on, her side was based on the presupposition that social media is the new public square. Nowhere yeah. more can we see this in the past 15 months where we have been locked down and social media has become literally most people's public square. So yes. where you have the legal discourse that says, on the one hand, Twitter, Facebook, etc., are private companies. They can do what they want with their private companies. And on the other hand, where rightfully people are pointing out that they have become monopolies that have usurped public discourse and that they should be responsible to, yes. let's say, upholding the First Amendment or in the EU, upholding freedom of consciousness and freedom of expression. How can this be resolved if at the end of the day, you have this huge intersection of trolls and bots that can flag up, especially since a lot of these trolls are men, <laughs> can flag yeah. up women as conducting hate speech when in fact they're doing nothing of the sort. They're saying nothing that wouldn't be found in a high school textbook. How can this be resolved? So the, I, I still think that part of it can be resolved changing who has the power to decide what happens within these platforms. So for instance, in this, in this setting currently that we have, um, men can get together, start to flag that certain women are allegedly problematic and just get them banned from the platform. There, it's a question about thinking like, oh, why is that dynamic okay? Why is, for instance, Twitter listening to a bunch of men who are uh, joining forces to ban a particular woman? Um, why, why can't it be maybe that you have a whole committee from people from different sides, um, people from different um, industries, different backgrounds who could look through certain through these cases to provide um, to 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 provide feedback about what what should happen. Um, and, and I think that right now it, it's you're absolutely right that um, the pandemic has also even changed these uh, platforms into a public square. And so. I, we have to have these conversations, and it's it's not obvious what what is the best uh, what what is the best course of action, and and I think it's having these conversations and with 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 each other, and I think it's really challenging um, the power dynamics that exist on these platforms, and maybe even reconsidering um, about whether there's value in creating uh, maybe national type of public national type of um, platforms where um, it's not just one big tech company that has all of the power, um, but rather it's distributed across uh, different stakeholders who, who can um, decide uh, collectively on the governance. Well, you are based at the UNAM, the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, no? Yes, I'm working with them. Can you explain a little bit about how your work might differ in your work in Mexico from the US. I've taught in Mexico and I'm just curious as to how research is 
perhaps different in what you're undertaking in Mexico and the social, obviously the social fabric that reflects that? Yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm actually teaching a class on global UX as well. Uh, and so I've been thinking a lot about this, uh, how, how it's different. Um, I think that part of it is, it's maybe part of it, I think it's um, understanding that the collaborations with industry, academia are very different in Mexico than in the US on one hand. Um, it's problematic sometimes that um, industry is not providing um, many times uh, with um, research experiences uh, within Mexico. So they have more uh, develop the development sites. Um, and so, so some of the things that we're doing from the university is really taking on a lot of these um, think it, it can sometimes also be an opportunity uh, because if you don't have big tech, for instance, providing research opportunities um, to people in Mexico, well, then it's creating them, for instance, from academia. And so uh, we've been aiming uh, within academia to start to really think a lot about, well, how can we change uh, these dynamics that exist with big tech? Um, and we've been very much focused on designing within big tech, considering that maybe big tech is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, but I don't have a complete answer about how it's um, like how, how how the fabric is different. I think that some some of the big differences is understanding um, that um, on one hand, we Mexicans manage time very differently, for instance, than in the US. Um, we are, uh, when, when you're thinking about culture, we're um, low, um, sorry, high, co high context uh, cultures. Um, high context cultures are cultures where you might not explain a lot of the rules in detail um, and the relationships uh, matter uh, significantly. Um, whereas for instance, in the US, uh, you have to explain the rules um, in detail, and also you you might be very much task oriented instead of um, oriented with respect to the, the relationships. Um, and so those are some of the main um, some of the main changes that I, that I would see, um, where maybe relationships um, and creating a bond with with other people manage uh, matter much more in in Mexico, um, where where in the U.S. you might be very much task focused. Um, it, it can be hard sometimes to to balance those two. And are the interactions with bots different across countries? Have you noticed? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, so uh, for, for instance, in Mexico, um, bots became pretty mainstream uh, from, tw from 2012. Um, and so I would say that a lot of the times right now, people are ignoring bots um, and a bot, a bots have become just completely mainstream. Uh, for instance, I had, uh, what, one of my friends was actually attacked by like a, a massive, uh, a, a massive number of bots uh, that was like paid by another of her, like her, her enemy paid for, for bots. And so just normal citizens are having like these bot type um, battles. Um, and so 
given that they, they've become so mainstream, people are just learning how to deal with bots um, in their everyday life um, because they're, they, they have become very, very much common in the, in the, in the public discourse of, um, of, of, of Mexican uh, online politics. Um, and, and I would say that uh, within the US, what we were finding was, um, I, I, Bots were very was were very much used more in an individualistic form in the U.S. Uh, so, for instance, um, we found that political bots were used to create games uh, to engage the individual. Um, so they weren't used. And for instance, in Mexico, bots are used more uh, within the collective of, uh, for instance, promoting uh, particular messages that will reach the collective. In the US, uh, political bots were used very much more to engage the individual, uh, for instance, to play games. Um, they, um, we, we found that uh, in pro-Trump uh, forums, um, they had created their own bots and they were using the bots to help the individual be engaged through games. And so is there a way that the user, like myself, if I'm interacting on Twitter and I get messages that are pro-Trump, how would I as a user be able to interact with that bot to either have more information, are bots automatically scripted to then return information to me? Some of them are. So it, it, it depends a lot on uh, the type of bot that you're interacting with. So for instance, this pro-Trump bot um, was on, it was on Reddit actually. Um, and what, what it focused on doing was um, if you used, uh, for instance, let's say that you mentioned the wall, um, the bot would uh, play a game with you about how many miles of the wall have been, had been built. Um, and so it was um, re kind of returning information to you, but more focused on engaging you in a little game around building the building the wall. Um, and so that that was one game that that the bot created. It can depend a lot on the bot's nature. Um, you you have also other bots, for instance, that um, can respond to questions that people are asking to them. Um, and uh, they, they, they provide information about what, what's happening there. Um, a really nice, actually, platform for building bots is called BotPress. Um, and they, they have really nice framework for, for instance, for having bots that return information. But it, it depends on the type of bot that, that, is, that, that is designed. Is there any evidence of bots actually changing political opinions? Have there been any studies to show that bots have the ability to shift people's political valences. There was a study about, um, for instance, uh, people who were engaging in hate speech, and then you had bots that created interventions um, to them, so kind of like to nudge them to stop engaging in the hate speech. And they did find that after the bots nudge, people did start changing how, how they were expressing themselves um, around certain hate speech. Um, that, that paper, I, I, right now I don't remember the authors, but that was a really interesting paper. So in some cases, um, bots have been, for instance, effective in, in nudging people into different directions. Is there evidence to the contrary where bots might encourage quote unquote hate speech or non-acceptable political discourse? So I haven't seen them. 
Um, I haven't seen that type of bot. Um, well, so I haven't seen studies on, on that, um, but I think that that would be very interesting to study. Um, I think that sometimes it can be difficult to understand exactly what radicalized an individual. True. Although I'm wondering if the use of bots with the plethora of bots out there has gotten so far away from studies, like it would be very difficult, wouldn't it, to set up a study to recognize bots? I mean, can you recognize what a bot is? Yeah, and also um, so sometimes it can be dangerous to label uh, accounts as bots because as I mentioned, uh, you can have sometimes accounts that are just um, pe people with a low digital literacy skill, so they, they look weird. Um, some of the things that we were doing to detect bots was, Looking, for, looking at the type of platform that were used to tweet. Um, for, for instance, uh, some of the bot accounts, uh, they're using a platform called Botice. Um, and so this is uh, like what, when part of the, that marketplace that, that, that I discussed. Basically, Botice is a marketplace that from where you can purchase bots and they have their own um, platform for tweeting. And so when we checked um, kind of like the log data related to the bot, we were able to see what is the source. And from there, we were able to see like, oh, these are coming from these types of marketplaces. And so that, that was um, a giveaway about that they were bots. Um, sometimes bots that are more savvy, what ways in which you could detect them is if they're using the same type of message. So if, if it's a repetitive message or if they're all tweeting at the same time. Interesting. So I'm thinking back to your paper, Fighting Disaster Misinformation in Latin America, the 19S Mexican Earthquake Case Study. Which oh, thank you, you for reading that. Yes, you co-authored this with Claudia Flores Saviaga, where you both investigate how participants use different social media platforms in the aftermath of a natural disaster in a global South country. And you also looked at how individuals develop their own processes to verify news reports using an on-the-ground citizen approach and how these people develop their own mechanisms to deal with outdated information. The conclusion you both drew was this, quote, from our findings, we can conclude that misinformation should be tackled as a cross-platform problem. Can you explain what that means and, and maybe discuss more about that study? Yeah, so one of the things, so here we were studying um, how people were fighting misinformation. So misinformation is incorrect information that is being shared online. Um, and that's different than disinformation where in disinformation, you have um, incorrect information, but it's information, incorrect information that is shared intentionally. Um, so for instance, uh, maybe somebody is sharing like, oh, uh, Biden's son had pornography in his computer. Um, maybe that's this information because they're aiming to share those political lies. Um, it, it's shared with a purpose. Um, and misinformation is just incorrect information that's shared, but it, it wasn't intentionally shared. Um, so for instance, misinformation could be somebody saying like, oh yeah, I met him at five o'clock. But in reality, it was three o'clock. Um, it's just that the, the person lost track of time. Um, and so that those are the differences between misinformation and disinformation. In this paper, we were studying how people were fighting misinformation during an, a, a large scale earthquake that happened in Mexico. 
Um, and here, uh, some of the misinformation was around, for instance, people saying, hey, guys, we need uh, rescuers in downtown Mexico City. But it turns and so people would share that um, the, that 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 information, but it turns out that it was maybe uh, from three days ago, and so nobody was really needed in in the area. Um, and so, the what we were finding was that, uh, for instance, on Twitter, people started creating um, flags to post to say uh, when certain information was valid, when certain information had timed out. Um, and the problem is that many times certain information from Twitter gets put onto Facebook, but on Facebook, it was hard for people to understand whether or not that content was, uh, for instance, outdated. Um, and so if it's outdated, it's no longer, it's it's a little bit misinformation because the information is no longer valid. Um, and so we were discussing a lot about how there should be communication across platforms um, to help flag misinformation and also to help people. Uh, for instance, if you found uh, incorrect content on Twitter, it, it, you should also be able to report it that that, it, that same content that's incorrect on Facebook. Um, and so we were discussing about how we needed more cross-platform uh, discussions. What is misinformation actually since you mentioned let's say joe biden's son's drug use well that is a truth even if it's being used to manipulate political discourse and get people to hate on biden because they're they're using a personal truth to attack a political great how can we differentiate between real news and fake news when what might be considered fake news is real, but being used for not so great ends. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think it's understanding how we might be used uh, within um, a manipulative spectrum, um, and so like understanding, for instance, that uh, there might be certain truths in some statements, um, but. Maybe it's being presented to us uh, to manipulate us in, in a particular way. And I, I think that it's key to understand how um, certain actors might benefit from um, us uh, pushing forward uh, certain agendas. Um, and so may, maybe that, that's a way in which uh, to, to address some of those uh, so, so, so some of those topics. So are there any people on the ground in your field making active moves to create a more democratic social media platform. For instance, you suggested national platforms, which has been suggested over the past few years as a way of combating Twitter and Facebook's monopoly on this domain. Yeah, right now, um, there has been an emergence of all tech platforms. So kind of like alternative platforms to, uh, for instance, like Facebook, Twitter. What's also problematic about these all tech platforms, and um, I want to mention something really quickly, a lot of these platforms have become uh, especially now more popular um, after, for instance, Donald Trump was banned on Twitter. Um, I think that what is important to understand is that these platforms can also be dangerous in terms of um, many times they're not necessarily set, um, set they're they're not necessarily for instance um going after or analyzing whether or not certain people are being radicalized on the platform 
Um, and so, for instance, you could have maybe now people who are joining new, some of these new all tech platforms um, and people are being radicalized. And uh, before on Facebook, maybe um, they would have moderators who would intervene or, or, or do something against that radicalization. Now you, you don't have that. Um, and so these all tech platforms can be dangerous in, in that terms. Um, some countries have started actually after, uh, for instance, after Donald Trump was uh, banned from Twitter, uh, for instance, in Mexico, um, the president started saying that he wanted to create also his own um, national national social media platforms um, precisely because uh, he felt that it what it shouldn't be just one company that gets to decide uh, for instance if a world leader can uh, share his his or her message that would mean that there really does need to be some sort of oversight from organizations even outside of the social media giants such that we can have a more transparent review of not only, who's being booted and why journalists are being targeted, but also how information is being put out there in the sense that I work with fake news all the time. I have to read across the political spectrum. And I think you were referencing earlier Parler, which became popular when it was booted from Google servers. Yeah. At the same point, if, if you join Parler, which I did, and I had people saying, why did you join that? That's a right wing <laughs> social media platform. And I said, well... <laughs> Frankly, I'd like to read across the spectrum. I am not on the right, but I think it's important that we uphold free speech. And in that, I support Parler. Now, we'll see what happens with Parler if they themselves do not become their own form of woke. But so far, that seems to be a platform that's committed to free expression with its goods and evils. How can users who are diehard Facebook and Twitter fans, and they won't ever go to Parler because they deem that to be the ultra right, how can they be aware of their own tendentious leanings in the sense that many of these users are the ones who say Russiagate, Russiagate over and over, even though there's been investigations into that, this has been by the Intercept decried as complete hokum, that of course there have been involvements in the U.S. elections, as the U.S. has also been involved in other countries' elections historically. Need I go there? I mean, Latin America has had one intervention after another of U.S. content. So what would be the fair space for investigating fake from real news, real from fake interventions? And earlier you mentioned that it's not that bots are necessarily a problem, it's how we use them. But if bots are 60% of the content on social media, that seems to me too much in the sense that at any moment, we could be inundated with fake political messages and not know it. Yeah, I think that, um, so I remember that, um, I believe that the US used to have, um, didn't the US used to have like a national, um, and like a national hour where uh, both sides of um, political information was analyzed. And um, even if it was highly controversial, um, both sides would be analyzed and then um, you would have a neutral voice that would provide kind of like an explanation about what was happening. I feel that is very much needed um, because right now I am, you make a really good point that what can start to happen is that 
you could you could also think that maybe Twitter and Facebook are going to be another form, another space for radicalization, um, where may, maybe it's, for instance, the people on the left, the only ones that 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 stay there, um, and it becomes problematic where um, they're becoming even more polarized. They're seeing, um, for instance, people on the right as uh, being uh, completely foreign to them, um, or I've interviewed a lot of uh, like pro-Trump supporters, for instance, and they discuss a lot how um, kind of like the left dehumanizes them um, and is always considering them to be um, kind of um, not very intellectually savvy. Um, and so I, I think that you're right that what can happen is that um, the people who stay, for instance, on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, they, they could start to see the, the people on the right as non, kind of like non-humans, um, not, not very smart, et cetera, when, when they, when they might be, um, actually very, very intellectual. And so, um, I wonder if maybe having, um, news that can cover both sides and provide a more neutral control, con, um, uh, contextualization um, might facilitate uh, and be an option. Well, what are the potential benefits and harms where social change becomes a driver in a world where big tech is no platforming certain voices? We're really at a crossroads where people are now, like I just mentioned, taking up Twitter or Facebook if they're on the left and moving towards Parler and other platforms if they're on the right. So Yes, uh, political voices are being polarized by virtue of the platforms they use, which is creating, of course, echo chambers. And the reference you made to having someone from the middle intervene, I mean, those used to be prevalent. In the 1980s, there were many talk shows like Crossfire, where you'd have left, right, and, and people would argue it was a great weekend entertainment. And you'd watch people you deeply disliked speak but at least there was that interaction. Yeah. Social media has in recent years polarized and created hermetically sealed content. So if I don't like what you say, I'll block you. If I don't like what a person says, I'll mute them. So I am not exposed to differing political views and I can yeah. go about my own form of wokery and say, oh, but I'm right. And as you just mentioned about the conservative crowd, they are painted often as women haters, regressively natured in terms of being racist or xenophobes, yeah. etc. And these are mischaracterizations, I believe, because we're missing the nuance of political discourse on social media, which I think is due to the way the platform is. I mean, let's face it, how much innuendo can you have and nuance can you have in a Twitter discussion? I completely agree, actually. Um, and you're right that this aspect of being able to block, uh, mute people is um, promoting that aspect of um, dehumanizing the other um, and really promoting polarization because you think that the only people that you might see also, and your news feed as well, is also promoting that um, because you you get only content that you're liking, et cetera. And so you think that, oh, everybody believes what I believe. Um, and you're not challenged 
to see other views. Um, and so I wonder if they're maybe uh, adopting the fairness uh, doctrine that um, the Federal uh, Communications Commission's had, um, if, it, if it would make sense. Um, so this was a policy that required um, the holders of broadcast um, licenses to have to present controversial to have to present both controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a matter that was honest, equitable, and balanced. Um, and so um, I, I don't know if, if something like that might make sense, for instance, for social media, um, because right now I agree with you that it's becoming very, very polarized. Um, and for me, so um, I, I'm a foreigner in the, in the U.S. And so I think that for me, sometimes it's easier to kind of see the polarization because I'm not I'm not in either side. Does that make sense? Um, it, it's uh, and so I, I do see what you're mentioning about um, that. For instance, the the right gets shown under a certain light. Um, the left also gets shown under a certain light, and uh, they're not having at all conversations with with each other. Um, and so I, I definitely do do see that, um, and I think that being a foreigner for me it's helpful because um, I I don't identify with with I, I see it as I'm a visitor to um, a, another person's house, and so I'm just I, I just observe I, I don't um, I, I I don't get my hands dirty for for for, for either side. <laughs> That's wise. <laughs> <laughs> is big tech making huge profits from this polarization as opposed to a more mediated interaction? Great point. Yes, definitely. Um, it's um, from political science theory, we know that polarization is a great motivator for getting people to do things. Um, and so big tech is probably the, the, the polaris, having people polarized um, probably gets them, for instance, to engage in more political discussions um, and engage also uh, furthermore with the, their different candidates. They might That might lead them, uh, for instance, maybe to watch more videos on their platform, um, maybe buy certain products. And, and so it becomes a whole cycle. Um, and so probably big tech is uh, benefiting from having people polarized. Well, are there ways that higher education can help out in this? I'll give you the example of how Mexican universities, at least when I taught there, in order to get a bachelor's degree, students had to do a certain number of hours of work in the community. Is that still the case today? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, it's uh, Servicio Social, yes. I think actually that's a good idea um, because it can, it forces you out of your comfort zone. Um, and many, many times it gets you uh, to see the real world, um, especially other aspects of, of the real world that you might not be exposed. Um, that's, yeah, that, that's a really good point. What was your social service that you did while you were at the UNAM as an undergraduate? Oh, uh, th thank you. Thank you for asking um, that. So um, I was actually working on... Um, I was helping the School of uh, Philosophy and Letters in terms of uh, building um, websites for them uh, to help them engage their, their audience. And so for me, that was very helpful for connecting with artists and understanding how I could use my engineering skills to help artists 
um, be creative and uh, design technology for them. Um, also, it was um, thanks to them, I, I started learning more about critical theory because I also had a lot of philosophers there. Um, and so they were really nice in terms of guiding me um, it, on uh, really good uh, philosophy notions that I've integrated um, into my own research. What kinds of notions were those? So one is, um, so one, I, thanks to them, I got exposed uh, to a philosopher called Marcuse. So Marcuse is from um, the Frankfurt School of Critical, um, of, of critical Theory. Um, and some of the things that he's looking at is many times when you're aiming to design or create, for instance, change, um, it, it can be very difficult because the world around you is forcing you to follow a uh, certain propaganda. It's, it's forcing you to think that you have certain needs, which you might not even really have. It, it's forcing you to fall into something that he calls one-dimensional thinking. Um, and so that was helpful for me because, uh, for instance, I'm designing many times um, tools um, to help address this information or tools to help workers improve um, their, their workspaces. And it's been helpful for me to think about, oh, wait, I might be following um, certain ideals, uh, but it's more because the structures in my environment are making me believe that this is um, important and I'm just scratching under the surface. And so what he argues is that a way to address those problems is through the use of fiction. And fiction can help you to just step out of the reality that exists and create a, something completely different. Um, and so that, that was why uh, right now, before when we were discussing about, well, how would you change these types of platforms? I started thinking about, well, you know, maybe it's through fiction that we get, uh, for instance, women to start to imagine completely new social media platforms. What would they look like? Um, we, we don't have to follow what we know currently exists um, because you've been, uh, it's, it's been very true what you mentioned about how problematic these platforms are and how they might be benefiting, for instance, men. There are days, I tell you, Saif, that I wake up and I think, I wish the internet had never been invented because of the craziness that I see on social media. And you mentioned fictions, which I think are useful, both in terms of storytelling. For instance, when I was working at the UN, one of the UN workers that I was assisting said to me, well, we need to make a film about what we've seen, some of the corruption within the UN. But in order to make the film, we can't do a documentary or we will be accused of libel. So let's create a fiction based on exactly what we've just lived through. And we thought about that, and we may or may not produce that, but it made me think about how when you tell truths on the internet, that gets immediately tossed out as disinformation. But when you tell stories that are couched as fiction, that might reach a greater audience. Conversely, however, when I mentioned to you Megan Murphy getting kicked off of Twitter for being an alleged transphobe, this was because she was fighting a fiction that was very much fomented in the realm of MUDs and you know, earlier uh, internet technology where people would imagine themselves as the opposite sex. Now we have the whole gender narrative that's entered into social media and feminists in the UK have been fighting against the ways in which they are now not allowed to insist on sex segregated spaces. So this has been both a boon and a disservice to women's rights in the sense that today in the UK, if a man declares himself a woman, 
he goes to a woman's prison. You'll see media all over the UK saying this woman raped another woman, although legally you can't rape unless you have a penis, right? So this becomes then this super large gyre of disinformation that's couched as media truth because the laws are being changed in such a way that a woman saying that sex segregated spaces for prisons, hospitals, changing rooms need to be maintained to maintain women's safety. Because as you know, in Mexico, especially in the last two decades, there have been an increase on, well, the desaparecidas, the maquiladores, the whole process of how women's voices and bodies are being removed. So I wonder if the benefits of social media are actually outweighing its deficits or the other way around. What is your take on this? I mean, is social media good for us ultimately, or are there too many negatives coming out of it? I think there are significant negatives that we do need to think about. Um, and I, I think that that's actually, that's a really good question that uh, we should think deeply about. Um, a lot of my friends actually have in recent years left social media. Um, precisely because they felt that it wasn't bringing value into their lives. It was, uh, as you mentioned, creating a lot of polarization. Um, and I, I think that it's valid to reconsider about, is this bringing value into my life? Um, and just stepping, being able to step away. Um, I left Facebook for a while Um I think sometimes it's helpful even for rebuilding yourself. Uh, it's somewhat problematic that on now on social media, you're always connected to your past. Uh, I think that sometimes it's helpful to be able to just, for instance, maybe move to a new city and create new friends so that you can start to rebuild yourself as well um, and not have uh, a lot of the baggage, for instance, that you had from high school or your undergraduate. Um, and so I think that there is value in reconsidering about is social media bringing value into my lives um, or even as well maybe influencing um, your ideology that you might not even have.